0: Welcome back to another episode of Season 3 of Stern Chats. On the show today is NYU Stern Associate Professor of Marketing, Adam Alter. Students rave about Adam's class, where he teaches the powers of behavioral marketing and economics.
1: So, besides teaching at Stern, Adam is a New York Times bestselling author of two books, Irresistible, which assesses addictive human behaviors, from nonstop smartphone and internet use to online shopping and video games. Also, the book Drunk Tank, Pink, which analyzes how subtle forces in the world shape our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors.
0: Other than having an impressive resume, Adam is an expert from Australia. On this episode, he shares his journey from Down Under, digging deeper into the decisions that shaped his career in academia and life outside of Stern.
1: Now, on this episode, we had little help. One of our associate producers, Andrew Slotnick, did a lot of research to produce this episode for you listeners, and also Derek Fine directed it from the booth. So Derek, you listened to this episode today. What stood out to you? What stood out most to me about Adam is that he is really knowledgeable about behavior science and that this field in general is really relevant to a career in almost anything. So truly fascinating subject, he's really knowledgeable, and he has an awesome accent. Yeah, he sure does. Well, Derek, you're actually new to Stern Chats this semester, and you've done some great work behind the scenes. Can you just introduce yourself to the audience real quick? Sure. I received my undergraduate degree from Cornell University, after which I immediately pursued a career in media production. I worked at ABC News and CNN. And now I'm here at NYU Stern in order to learn more about the corporate side of the media and entertainment industries.
0: Well, we're so happy to have you. You bring a lot of enthusiasm and structure and have been so helpful in the production of our episode. So thank you. We really appreciate it.
1: So everyone else that helped, Andrew Slotnick, Daniel Tennyson, Bob Kerr, everyone on Stern Chats, thank you so much for your hard work. What do you think, Sherry? It's such a good episode. Should we just get right into it?
0: Let's get right into it.
1: All right. Cue that music.
2: From New York University Stern Campus, this is... Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships,
0: and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Ferricchio and Sherry
2: Holes.
1: Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're here with Adam Alter, marketing professor, best-selling author, and TED speaker. Thank you so much for coming, Adam. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. The first thing you notice about Adam
2: is that he's Australian.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed.
2: Yes, I am. Let's get that right out in the open. I am Australian. I, I was born in South Africa. I spent seven years there, moved to Australia, spent 16 years there, and I've now been in the U.S. for 14. So... This accent, no matter where I go, everyone wants to claim I'm from somewhere else.
0: Wow. Mm. Where in South Africa did you grow up? Johannesburg. Oh, my goodness. I, I spent a little bit of time in South Africa uh, in May, and it was spectacular. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. No,
2: I'm lucky. I've, I've lived in good places.
0: Yeah, so yeah. you started out with the South African accent. Yes. Then it morphed into blended an Australian. It, blended it in. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, to me, any type of accent automatically makes you sound smarter yeah and, is that right uh, Good, <laughs> i'll take it i'll take whatever i can get
1: not to but i don't want to make you feel weird but i think people say too like more attractive there's something about having a little bit of an accent that can be attractive maybe it's just some people
2: yeah is no it just me well one of the theories of attractiveness is that you need to be just like everyone else but slight there needs to be just like a slight thing that makes you different and interesting so an accent is that thing that makes you just off kilter that could be the, the factor. Interesting, so if you don't have an axe and you gotta do something else, like juggle. Yeah, it's gotta be like a juggle, <laughs> unicycle, any circus skill, I think, will, will get you there. Yeah, I think wink I-
0: Wink really well.
2: Be a good winker, uh, <laughs> yeah. just
1: so you know. I wink you-
2: at the first percentile, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 1% winker. <laughs>
0: Interesting,
1: Yeah, top notch. Just so you know, radio listeners, uh, Sherry just winked and it was horrible.
0: <laughs> My whole face scrunched wink. up.
1: It looked like someone hit you in the side of the head with like a, like a grapefruit or something. <laughs> okay, so a- so Adam, you, uh, you introduce students here to uh, behavioral marketing. Yes. We know you, you're famous, right? You're famous not only for your TED Talks and your books, but just at Stern. You're hashtag Stern Famous. That's, that's but, great,
2: great to hear. But that's... for
1: people that don't know you, can you give them like a 20-second intro,
2: yeah. just yourself? Yeah, sure. I uh, I have a PhD in social and cognitive psychology from Princeton, uh, so that means I study human judgment and decision-making, but I'm really especially interested in how people make decisions in the business world, and so I, I'm curious about why people buy what they buy, whether they derive benefit from what they buy, whether the charities out there that deserve money are able to attract the money they need, things like that. So I'm interested in in consumer behavior very, very broadly, and in trying to understand how Psychology can inform consumer behavior and our understanding of what consumers do. Um, I, I do a few other things as well as, uh, as teach. I do a lot of research here, and uh, I write books, and I consult, and I speak at events and things like that, industry events. Uh, and so all of it is around this central idea of trying to understand from a, through a psychology lens why people are doing what they're doing.
0: When did this interest in cognitive psychology and hu- human behavior horizon yeah
2: I was uh, I was studying as an undergrad in 1999 I think it was it was my first year as an undergrad in Australia and I had no idea what I wanted to do so I, a friend and I basically said let's go to the introductory lecture of 20 different courses and I, we did that for philosophy and a sociology class and we did it for a math class we did it for everything that we could think of and um, that's how I made my decision. I liked the psych one best. So I went into a psych lecture. It was actually a psych lecture on what I ended up doing, which is social and cognitive psychology. It was so fantastic. I ended up studying under that professor. He, he taught an honors course. I did a thesis with him. And that's where I got interested in, in what I do now. So it's it, usually these sort of strange little quirks, the, the serendipity that, that, things pop up, and they, you follow them, and they end up becoming you know, your life story. I always find that fascinating, how often that happens.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it sounds like you followed your passion, but you first approached it like a scientist.
2: Yeah. I wanted right. to whittle it down. I wanted to start with a really big net and, and try to understand as much as possible of what was going on in the academic world, because I had no idea what was interesting to me, because a lot of things were, which is, I think, typical of a lot of academics. Yeah.
1: Well, how old were you in 99? I was 19. Um, 19, so. Yeah. Or 18, ni- even. 19 year old in 1999, what other interests could they possibly have? Let's think. <laughs> well avoiding Y2K. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, prepping. prepping that's that's right. Right. The Sydney yeah. Olympics was a year
2: that's right. ahead. Yeah, we were all very excited about that. Even a year ahead we were thinking about it.
1: That was a quality Olympics. It was if a I may very say. good Olympics. Yeah. Ian the... Thorpe versus Michael Phelps was a big a big deal for me. It was. Wow. Yeah, it was good
0: memory. Yeah, yeah. they were both
1: swimmers. That was the first time I saw people swimmers in those those giant bodysuits. That's right. And I wanted one so bad. But it just wasn't for me. It was, a, it was a fun two
2: weeks, but for the first week I was recovering from wisdom tooth surgery, so I watched it from my bed. I had I had the chipmunk face thing going on. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah. but it, But it was great, even on TV. But the second week, getting out there was really fantastic. So you took these classes in Australia, but what led you to study these things in the United States? So I, I spent my four or five years as an undergrad in Australia. I was also studying law, again, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was doing law and psychology. And when I finished my honors degree in psychology, my advisor, who happened to be American, said, hey, you should go and study in the U.S. So I said to him, I'm not sure that that's what I want to do, but it sounds interesting. Why don't I send in some applications? And so I sent in applications to a few schools. And uh, Princeton said, yes, we'd like you to come. And, uh, you know, there's a particular professor there. Uh, The story goes that he had another Australian student. So he went to this Australian student and said to him, you seem all right? And the Australian student (laughs) was like, yeah, I'm okay. And then he he showed him my resume and said, does this look okay? Does it all look kosher? Is it above board? And, you know, this guy who ended up becoming a good friend of mine said looks all right to me and so then i got the invitation so these things work in mysterious ways that is so, mysterious i
0: wish admissions processes today was like that wow. just you know float your resume does, does she look okay well
1: let's just let's just mm-hmm. gloss over the fact that he just thought anyone from australia is a monolith <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah he was he was pretty it's old school the like accent that. <laughs> once
0: again yeah that's
1: that's really interesting
0: So we understand that you studied under Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologist. What was that like and what did you learn from him? Yeah,
2: he wasn't my advisor, but he was at Princeton at the time. So I took a a class with him and we chatted about some of my research. He'd attend some of my talks and it was a huge privilege. I mean, he's a a huge brain, he's a very smart guy. Uh, He pioneered a whole area of research that became what I and probably a hundred or two hundred or even three hundred other people do. So he's really the grandfather of our field. and so it was it was a real privilege to study with him. Um, there are some people who you come across where they they everything they say seems like it has the weight of just incredible uh, intellect and thoughtfulness and importance behind it. and he's one of those people. He's one of the the handful of people I've come across in my life where when he says something it, it seems like the most important and insightful thing you've heard that day, routinely. So it was really a privilege to study with him.
0: So is that, studying under him and studying your thesis, was that your entree into the study of color and um, sort of behaviors um, in that field and, you know, obviously led to your New York Times bestseller, Drunk Tank Pink?
2: Yeah, so I've been interested in colour forever because um, I am colorblind. So when I was 15, I participated in something that every student in Australia did, or a lot of students did, called the Young Scientist Competition. And you had to pick a scientific question and try to investigate it. So I was in grade nine and I, I wanted to sort of cure blindness, which it turns out is hard to do. So I, I spent a few months looking into colorblindness and trying to understand what was going on inside my own brain and in my my retina and so on and and uh, that's where I really grew interested in color. Um I didn't solve colorblindness but I became quite fascinated with it. And and so when I was writing this book, one of the things I became curious about was how do how do the colours around us shape how we think, feel and behave and, and what happens if you're colorblind? Are you susceptible to the same influences? Are you not? Are you susceptible to different ones? Uh, and so that's how the book Drunk Tank Pink came about.
0: So what is the extent of your color blindness? What colors can't you see?
2: I am a primarily red-green, uh, but I, tr- I struggle with a lot of others like purple and blue. Uh, orange and brown sometimes get me. It's a lot of natural colors. So when I look at a tree, it just looks sort of generically tree-colored. Like the the bark, the leaves, the branches, they're all like a sort of muddy browny color. They're and the color of tree. They're the color see, for me tree wow. is a color. Yeah. Imagine if you had a color tree. In I your can't palette. imagine that. Yeah. And it's a mix it's what you would call a mix of red, brown, and green. So I, I will look at something like you could show me a color and I'll be like, Oh, that's tree colored.
1: But you know what's interesting as like a scientist, you know, or looking at something scientifically, I wonder if being colorblind makes you more objective. Because you're not influenced by the colors that you're studying at the same time as you're studying them?
2: Yeah, well, this is the big question. So drunk tank pink is an, is a color. It's this bright pink color that psychologists used in the 70s and 80s to paint the inside of, of drunk tanks or jail cells. You'd put someone in there briefly when they were drunk, and they'd calm down, and then you'd take them out and send them home. It was sort of a holding tank for drunk people. And they found that if they painted these drunk tanks bright pink, people needed less time in them before they calmed down. So 15 minutes was all you needed in the pink drunk tank, and then you could be released. And the, one of the big questions was, why is this happening? What if you can't see the pink? What if you're surrounded by pink, but you don't know it's pink? Does it have the same effect? And and the guy who discovered this effect said to me on the phone, when I talked to him about it a few years ago, it doesn't matter. If you're colorblind, you'll have the same response because it's really about how this color interacts with your physiology, but it's not about subjective experience. I don't think that's true. I think it is, you have to see that it's pink. That's my feeling, but uh, that was his claim. And so that's that's where the colorblindness factor comes in. I think it's an interesting question.
1: That's amazing. So the the book Drunk Tank Pink, obviously that's how you got the name of it. But there's also a lot of insights just about how things influence you in small ways that you're not even totally aware of.
2: Yeah. So the book is basically a compendium of, uh, of effects, all centering around the question, how does our world shape who we are and how we behave and think and feel? And so each chapter is devoted to one of these cues. Color is one of the chapters. That's where Drunk tank Pink comes from. It's a nice sort of emblem. The name is a nice, catchy, sort of intriguing emblem, I think, for what the book is about more broadly. Well, I hoped it was. That's why I picked the name. No,
1: it's a great title. It would also be a great band name. Yeah. There's yeah. A little, it just, it's
2: got, like, nice tempo to it when you say it. Yeah, it's actually it's a, it's been the name of a lot of different art exhibitions. So huh. I, I've Googled the name a few times. As you'd imagine, when you write a book with that name, you Google... You Google it a lot, and it's there are a lot of art exhibitions around the world called Drunk Tank Pink. They all, I think, think that it's original.
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, that is a hardy thing to do. Yeah. It, it's, but it was really crisp, you know, Drunk Tank Pink. I mean, it's better than, like, Seafoam Green.
2: It kind of yeah. oozes out, you know? Yeah, I, I study naming. It's one of the things I study broadly. So I spent a lot of time agonizing over the name. And it, it violated some of the key principles that I normally suggest people use when they name, but... Not all of them. And it's got that staccato punchy drunk tank pink. I mean, it sounds like rat tat tat, which is good. And it's also intriguing. People ask questions. So whenever I do interviews on the book, the first question is tell us about drunk tank pink, which is it's a great opening question because it then opens up a vista of other questions and, and things to discuss, which is another thing that I thought it might do. And it seems to have done that. And you are accurate and correct. <laughs> I was. I, I mean, the other thing is no one can remember the title of the book because it's just three random words in their minds. Like, there, there are people who call it Think Pink Drank. Uh, they just have no idea. So it, it takes a while for people to get their heads around the name, which I didn't anticipate. But I, I probably I could have used a different name. You know, the title of my second book is Irresistible. No one has ever got that title wrong. They remember it. No one can spell the word, but they all remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, my, you know, when I write my third book, I'm going to pick a title that is both memorable and also easy to spell. And easy uh, to spell. The Holy Grail, Sherry.
0: Absolutely. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about the influence of color. Sure. Because uh, personally, I, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and its use in business. You know, I for, for example, a lot of people feel that, restaurants should be painted really warm colors, mm-hmm. you know, oranges and reds, because that tantalizes the, the senses and makes you hungrier instead of the cool colors. Yeah. So how do business people go about integrating color into their business models, and how does that subconsciously influence their uh, customers?
2: Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. First of all, a lot of what we think of as color science is just based on intuition. It's one of those areas where you don't need to be technical, you don't need expertise. Everyone has a theory about color. You know, if you say someone's wearing a black suit versus a gray suit, everyone has a theory about what that means. You know, like the black is maybe the power suit or whatever. You know, a lot of people have lay theories about color. So one of them is that you, you should have red in the logo and in the restaurants if you're a fast food company. And if you see and think about fast food companies, a lot of them do have reds, yellows, and oranges. It's a big part of what they do. It's true about all the very dominant ones in the U.S. and and actually around the world. And the theory is that a lot of the foods we eat that are appealing to us happen to naturally be at that end of the color spectrum, the Roy end of the Roy G. Biv on the rainbow, so the reds, oranges, and yellows. And as things ripen, they go more from the greeny to the more browny, yellowy, reddy. And... um, The theory is there that we have this biological attraction that we've learned over time as a species that it's smarter for us to approach foods that are that kind of color rather than say blues, purples. There are certainly berries that are great and great tasting that are those colors. But if you are foraging in the world, you need to get as many calories as easily as possible. You're going to need to eat a lot of those purple and red berries. Whereas if you find a piece of meat or you find something that is one of those other colors, it's likely to be richer in calories and therefore better for you, at least in evolutionary terms. That's a theory of color. Um, there are a lot of other effects of the color red, though, that, um, that people assume drive consumer behavior. One of them is that red raises the heart rate. So if you walk into a room and it's painted red, your heart rate will rise. And as a result, there's a theory that if you want people to buy more in your store, you paint it red because they tend to have fewer inhibitions, they buy more quickly, and they become more impulsive. And there's some evidence to, to that effect.
1: That's interesting. So this happens without you knowing it. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah, biologically but- programmed?
2: Yeah, it's. uh, I mean, usually it's just sort of a natural flow-on effect of the way our our bodies respond to those colors. So if our bodies happen to respond to red in that way, where the colors being surrounded by red makes your heart rate rise, your blood pressure goes up, there will be natural consequences. One of them is that you just do things more quickly, more rashly.
1: Okay, so two scenarios in using this to your advantage. You maybe wouldn't wear red to a job interview, but you would want to wear red on a date. Does
2: that sound (laughs) right? actually so the funny thing about red <coughs> is that it's it's great in lots of different contexts so um it actually does work on a date it makes people more attractive like talking to someone at a bar yeah having a, a pop of red works it works for both men and women it doesn't matter who you're trying to attract it it works. it works it works it's it's actually across the genders which is interesting people assume that red is associated with the femme fatale and with you know with women at least and the red dress It turns out men who wear red are also more attractive to other people, both men and women. It really cuts across all the gender combinations, which is interesting. Um, But it's also supposed to make you seem more dominant. So we know that uh, in the Olympic Games, in combat sports, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, says that you have to be randomly drawn to wear either blue or red before each bout. And about when when the two competitors are evenly matched, there's evidence to suggest that two-thirds of the time the competitor who's drawn to wear red wins the bout in lots of different sports, which is which is phenomenal. I mean obviously they' are trying their best to to eliminate performance enhancing drugs and they're doing everything they can to make it a fair even playing field, including randomly assigning colour. But it turns out that once you get that colour it has a huge effect on outcomes. One of the reasons is the referees perceive you as more dominant and impressive when you wear red. The other is that when you are wearing red, you feel more dominant. And a third is that when you see someone else wearing red, they appear more dominant. When you put all of that together, it ends ends up creating quite a big advantage for the person wearing red.
0: They should just switch jerseys at halftime.
2: Well, not every sport <laughs> has a halftime <laughs> yeah. Imagine yeah. wrestling. Just,
0: like, imagine like, running half of a race and then being like, actually, can we switch jerseys? Yeah. We just need, you just... need
2: colorblind referees. You need
1: colorblind <laughs> competitors. There you go. Yeah. Problem would be solved. Yep. Because they are potentially less impacted by color. But, I mean, or you could just have people have gray. Yeah, we Unless th- gray is they, something. They've thought
2: you. about that. Like, maybe it should be, like, stripes and spots or something. But, uh, you know, they haven't done it, so I don't know. We, we you, you have these all these really interesting effects. So the question is, do they actually influence policy? And some of them do and some of them don't, but policy is, is tricky to move the needle on. You know, if you speak to the International Olympic Committee, Olympic Committee and you show them the results, they say, oh, that's fascinating, but they, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to change something that, that they've been doing for decades. So that's always one of the big challenges for people who do this kind of research.
1: That's true. Also, the Olympic Committee is not necessarily uh, the... Uh Top of the pyramid as far as avoiding fraud and <laughs> <laughs> that's true.
0: You are making me think though about how even I perceive red in, in a very, very small ways. For example, I actually am using a red pen right now. Yes. Oh my God. I have I a blue note. pen. I have a well, blue pen. <laughs> but, I, but I distinctly remember, you know, in, in high school when a friend of mine would take a paper that I asked them to edit for me. And if, if they edited it in red, Yes. I, I remember distinctly thinking, gosh, those are really aggressive edits. You know, those, they're very, and then if somebody just did it in a black pen or in a blue pen, you know, perhaps I was more amenable to listening and abiding by the edits that I was given. I, I actually distinctly remember that.
2: Yeah, this is true. So people are more critical when they use red pen. They're both better at picking up genuine errors, but also more critical of things that are ambiguous. So there's actually a state in Australia that has a, a rule that you cannot, if you're a public school teacher, grade with red pen. You have to use black, blue, or green, or some other color. And and it's it's an attempt to remove that particular influence, that, that people are more critical when they use red.
1: That's interesting. These things really exist in the world, I mean, whether you know about them or not. And now, see, I'm wondering that you have decoded all of this color situation. Yeah. You, have you used any of these lessons about color to, to your advantage or just in your your business life?
2: Well, I, I think... For me, color much less than things like uh, naming. So I certainly use naming. when, I, As I said, when I was naming my books, I thought a lot about that. Um, color for me is, is sort of tricky because I don't really know exactly what I'm dealing with. I, I wear almost exclusively – I'm not sure what I'm wearing today. I'm wearing jeans, and I don't even know what color this I feel like sweater these are, is. These are all earth-toned like you They're, they're earthy, charcoal, char- gray. Char- charcoal gray. Yeah, I wear a lot of grays, blues – uh, you know, I had I had a funny thing happen the first year I taught at NYU. I, I went out to a store. It was a very nice store. And they had this this area where they were like, these shirts are 50% off. And so I thought, I'll buy a whole lot of these shirts, nice plain white shirts, and I'm going to wear them to class. And uh, this will take care of having to put together a new wardrobe. I was a grad student, and then I wanted to dress a little more smartly for my, my undergrads that year. And I wore these shirts day after day, obviously one after another after another, then I'd wash them and go through the cycle again. And at the end of the semester, when I looked at my course evaluations, almost everyone said the same thing, which was, was there a reason you wore pink shirts every day? <laughs> it turns out these, oh, were, no. these, were, <laughs> these were a powdery pink. And that's why they were in that section where they were discounted, because not that many people want a whole raft of powdery pink shirts. If you're listening out there and you do wear a lot of powdery pink shirts, that's great. But it turns out it attracts a lot of interest and people want to know why you're doing it. So the students were convinced it was a psychology experiment, that this was like drunk tank pink come. I was just about yeah, to say, right. yeah, wow. pink
0: as a, as a color of influence.
2: Did you own it or were you just like, absolutely? Yeah, I was like, yeah, I was trying to, try, trying to calm you guys down because you were rowdy. That's what ah. I was trying to do. <laughs> I, I was your drunk tank. <laughs> yes, walking, living, uh-huh. drunk tank. Exactly.
0: And that's when you met your wife and asked her to always tell you what always. color you're Always, wearing. always, 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 yeah.
1: That's, that's interesting. That's <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, but I, I must in, in influence your decisions every day. Because, like, for example, what you're wearing now is very much like if Jason Bourne was trying to blend into a crowd of people yes. to avoid detection.
2: That is, that is my dress rule. Can I blend into the crowd, avoiding detection, or will I wear that pink shirt with, without meaning to on that particular day? Mm. I, I, I'm always doing my very best to not be the guy that people say, what the hell color is that? And do so that's that's my rule.
0: Do you, when you go up to buy clothes at the register, do you say to the, the guy at the regis- guy or gal at the register, tell me what color this is and don't lie to me. Yeah,
2: <laughs> like- I, I do actually. It's It's a very useful thing is to say, how does this color... G- I, I usually give them, like, a softball question, like, does this match my eyes or something like that? And then they'll say something like... I don't want to say, I, I, I you know, what color is this, because it makes it look like there's something very wrong with me. But if I say, does this match these pants, whatever, they'll say, well, pink doesn't really go with yellow, and then I know what I'm doing with. Yeah, <laughs> so I I get around, it's a roundabout way of getting at what's going on here. Well That's but, terrific. It's been helpful.
1: Well, pink shirts aside, can you... Just tell us a little bit here about working at NYU
2: and like how you got to come to NYU. Yeah. So I was studying at Princeton, and I would come up here pretty much every weekend while I was there. So it was five years of weekends in New York, and I had friends who were professors at NYU. I had friends in in grad school at NYU. I, I loved this part of town, and then I started to meet the people in the marketing department at NYU, many of whom are still there. And they were just a fantastic bunch of people. It's a very warm collegial department to work in if you're a young professor. And when I first started out, I was in my, my, mid, my late 20s, still trying to find my feet in the U.S. Um, I was just looking for a department that felt warm and supportive. Also, the kind of research I do is, um, it is it is sort of mainstream marketing, but it's also it's got a strong psychology flavor. And not every marketing department wants that exact thing. So you've got to find a department that's friendly to the kind of work you do. And in my case, NYU was very receptive. And I loved the idea that I'd be in New York City because I always knew I wanted to do consulting and speaking and and to to have a foot in industry as well. And so I started at NYU in 2009. So I've been here just over eight years.
0: So you teach one of the core marketing courses to first-year MBA students. And the curriculum is sort of blanket amongst all of the professors, but how do you bring in that psychological aspect to your classroom?
2: Yeah, it's sort of blanket. We all use the same very basic model and framework, and you have a lot of flexibility within the model. And so I teach what I like teaching in the style that I like to use. Uh, I've taught this course to undergrads, to full-time MBAs, part-time MBAs, and executive MBAs. So it's all always slightly different for each audience based on background. But uh, yeah, I've been using basically the same approach, uh, and and it is it de- it's definitely infused with my interests. There's a lot of psychology in there. There's a lot of human behaviour. There's a lot of the stuff we've discussed, looking at how colour influences you, which not everyone will teach in an intro marketing course. But I think it's worth you know sharing your passions in, in the classroom. I think it it makes makes it easier for people to engage. And so I always try to do that where I can.
0: Yeah, I mean and I imagine that you almost use your classroom as a petri dish, as a as a tool for you to look into human behavior, especially as it relates to the connection with technology, um, and our connection with our devices, which is the topic of your second best-selling book, Irresistible. Yeah. And you know, when when did you start researching for Irresistible, and how did you come upon that research topic?
2: Yeah. So I was always fascinated that NYU, or at least Stern, has a policy that uh, students can't use devices in the classroom. There are no laptops. There are no phones. And it is it is miraculous as a as a professor. It's fantastic to have that. I know students have mixed views. But you definitely learn better when you don't have a screen in front of you. And for a professor, it's easier to teach when people don't have screens. And I became very curious about the effect of devices a long time ago and started studying the question about five years ago. And so I wrote the book over the last few years. It came out earlier this year. And it's really just that. It's an exploration of the extent to which screens and other tech have influenced us, have changed our lives. And I I frame it in terms of a concept known as behavioral addiction. So historically, we've thought of addiction as substance-driven, that the the only way you could become addicted to something was if you ingested a substance that interacted directly with your neurochemistry or something inside you. Uh, it, maybe it bound to certain receptors. Whatever it was doing was very physical. And more recently, we've come to expand the definition to describe very well-designed experiences that tap into the same processes. So without even requiring a substance, if you're a good engineer of experiences, you can create an experience that is addictive, maybe not with quite the same force as a drug, but that people find compelling in the same way. And that is what smartphones deliver to us now, where 50, 60% of the adult population has at least one behavioral addiction that is driven by these devices. And I, I just put it on the you table. You just put it on the table. I, I just <laughs> well, want to make sure it's dramatically. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, my mind has been vibrating in my pocket, so I'm going to turn this off now as well.
1: So you're saying that it's a literal addiction, almost the same neural pathway as a regular substance-based addiction? Yeah, exactly. It's um,
2: You know, people think of addiction as something that goes on in the brain. You know, you see a certain dopamine response. Dopamine is the receptor that's that's most associated with addictive responses or addiction. And, um, you know, there, there are these studies claiming, hey, look at this. When teenagers get a like when they use Instagram, their brains look a lot like the brains of heroin users just before they inject. And the, the world goes crazy and says, oh, my God, that's terrible. It is, in a sense, alarming, but you need a lot more than just a dopamine response. When kids eat ice cream, you get that response. If you're get, if you're being treated for pain in a hospital, say you've just had surgery and you get very, very pure opiates that are designed to treat whatever it is, whatever pain source you have, um, your your brain again will have this very strong flush of dopamine. But when you leave the hospital, most people don't develop very strong addictions to these medications. They manage to go back to everyday life. That's the reason is that. Addiction is two parts. It is certainly the, the response physiologically, but it's, it's also that the addictive experience, the thing that you're doing is treating some psychological deficit for you. It could be that you're lonely or anxious or have no social support or uh, have depression. It could be lots of different things. My sense is that a lot of behavioral addiction is treating a general tendency to be bored, I think we have a very low threshold for boredom. And you can see this when you step into elevators. People will be in an elevator for less than three seconds and they'll all universally pull out their phones. Oh, yeah. We yeah. just learned that there is a thing you can do to paper over the boredom. And, our, you know, people used to be okay with sitting for 10 minutes quietly. People don't do that anymore. We don't like doing it. It's uncomfortable for us. We pull out our phones immediately. I feel like it's getting shorter. It is right. getting shorter.
0: Well, behavioral addiction has been around, I think, Forever, I mean, I can remember sucking my thumb. Like I was addicted right. to sucking my thumb. Or, you know, now I have a really bad habit of, you know, <laughs> picking my nails. What What but, other
1: bad habits do you have, Just Well, you know, we won't go all. into them. But,
0: but yeah, do you do you take those uh, physical tics that people have and also connect it with our use of technology?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, there are subtle differences between behavioral addiction and things like basic bad habits or things that aren't even bad. You know, like. When a baby sucks his or her thumb, that's not an addiction because addiction, by definition, has to be bad. It has to undermine your well-being in some respect. If it's a purely soothing experience for a baby and there's no, there's no undermining going on, then it's okay. I think it just helps them. So something that you do over and over again, like breathing, for example, some people say breathing is an addiction. To me, that makes the definition empty. That means anything that you are required to do as a human being to exist becomes an addiction. That's not true. If breathing also, if every time you breathed made you unwell or unhappy or other in some other way, if it may, meant you had one less friend, that would be potentially an addiction. And a lot of what we do on our screens does exactly that. It makes you less physically healthy, makes you less psychologically healthy, hampers your social relationships, your relationships with family and friends, and that's where it can become an addiction. The fact that you check your phone a thousand times a day is not by itself a bad thing. It's what it encroaches upon and what it means you don't have time to do instead of that.
0: Well, you, in your research... Say that we spend on average nine minutes looking at happy things and twenty-seven minutes looking at unhappy things. Yeah, and that is potentially because of stopping lack of stopping cues or yeah. something else. But can you explain to us why are we attracted to the unhappy things in our lives?
2: Yeah, well, this is this is based on data from an app uh, where people are stopped as they're using various apps on their pro on their their smartphones, and they're asked how happy are you right now using that that app, and some make them happier than others. The ones that make them least happy are things like news apps, uh, social media apps. Um, I'm trying to think what the other ones are. Email makes them incredibly unhappy Oh, in for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a to-do list. Especially one exactly. Sherry,
0: Sherry emails Frank. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's very organized. She gives me a lot of stuff that has to get done, and it stresses me out in a big way.
2: That's the there side joke here. Sorry. There you go. So email. Um, those things we spend three times longer on each of those than we do on the things that make us happy, which are things like uh, education programs, um, weirdly the weather, utilities. Google Maps makes people incredibly irrationally happy. What? Yeah. They love they <laughs> love. Yeah. So for me, I think smartphones do their best work when they make tasks easier, when they're utilities. And they make us a lot less happy. Even video games make us unhappy, by and large. Like, when people report how they feel, they often feel less happy when they're playing video games than when they're doing things like checking the weather. And so when you put all that together, we're spending a lot of our time on screens doing things that make us less happy. The reason is those things that make us less happy... Tend to be the things that have a lot of hooks in them that are baked in to keep us using them. Things like the bottomlessness of the feed on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. The fact that email just never lets you go. It's like there's a there's a great piece uh, in the New York Times about how email is a lot like a zombie or a series of zombies that you kill it at night. You go to inbox zero at night. You have no more unread emails. You wake up in the morning and they've resurrected themselves. (laughs) And this is a daily, daily Sisyphean task where you roll the stone up the hill. Sorry, mixing thousands of metaphors here. But you get the idea that these things don't end. There are no stopping cues. A stopping cue is a thing that's baked into an experience that means that it's time to move on. Like a book that has chapters. You get to the end of the chapter. It says, hey, maybe you want to do something else. You watch a TV show in the 80s and 90s. You got to the end of an episode. It was another week till the next one
1: came out. Yeah, Night Rider didn't come out for another week. Exactly. <laughs> right? So you had to watch Airwolf <laughs> yeah, or, or The a or MacGyver. Yeah. Wow, these are all quality 80s. 80s they are quality 80s shows. shows. Some of your students maybe haven't even seen them. That's shocking. I've never right? heard this, of this, any of whoa, these whoa, whoa. things. This is
2: happening more and more. I, I've had this one slide in my class um, uh, that's a Seinfeld slide. And this was the first year where the majority of class looked at me like, I have no idea what's going on here. And that was, to me, a very sad day. That, that is, is kind of tragic. That is
0: the saddest day. What a
2: great television show. Yeah. 1998 was the last episode, so it's a long time ago. Hmm. But uh, I was 18 that year, and I watched that final episode, and I imagined that people forever would know what Seinfeld is, and it seems that now you know, we've, we've re- reached a, a watershed moment where a lot of my students just don't know.
0: Maybe Seinfeld will also resurrect itself, just like the emails, <laughs> and it'll come back full yeah, force. Probably, it probably <laughs> They made so
2: much money off that.
1: Well, that's that's interesting, that endless that endless nature of content. Yeah. And um, the fact that you don't have the stopping cue to, to make you turn it off.
2: It's uh, one of the most powerful forces in marketing at large is um, especially in the attention economy when something you're creating is for people's consideration. You want them to spend time thinking about it or looking at it or engaging with it. The best thing you can do is not to make it more interesting and engaging. It's to remove the things that stop people from using it. It's really about smoothing the path. If you imagine water trickling down the side of a mountain, eventually it'll carve. First, it'll be a narrow channel. Then it'll be a gorge. And, you know, it'll get bigger and bigger, this this channel it carves. And as the designer of any experience or, or program or product, your real job is to make that path as direct and smooth and as free of impediments as possible. And in psychology terms, this is known as channel factors. You want to get people like the water that goes and follows the channel. You want to make that channel as smooth as possible. And that's, that's what these, you look at these apps over time, Facebook introducing all sorts of features that made it easier and easier to stay and harder and harder to leave. This is what these programs do better than any other because they have access to huge troves of data. And also, they have a lot of really smart people working on design.
1: Yeah, but see, that's interesting, Sherry, because Facebook, all these endless apps, they have a monetary incentive to keep you on the thing. But what Adam is also saying is that it's bad for you to be endlessly addicted to something. So where is the line, I'm wondering, between you know the monetary incentives, like in a free market economy, people are trying to maximize their their profits, yeah. but behaviorists like yourself saying this is literally making people sick and unwell and unhappy.
2: Yeah, well it's an empirical question, right? It's really about how each individual feels in their own interactions, or his or her own interactions with the experience. There are people who, uh, you know, my first question when I'm talking to a group is, who here feels they'd like to change something, that, that the, their interactions with screens are affecting them in a bad way, in a negative way? Most people put their hands up. Uh, it's not that they all say, you know, oh, my life's ending. This is terrible. I'm so unhappy. But there's something they'd like to change. Then there are other people who say, you know what? I'm good. If, if you look at my motivation on a 10-point scale to change how I'm interacting with screens, I'm at a two. I'm I'm fine. And it's just about each individual saying how they feel. My my big issue, though, I have two young kids who are under the age of two. When I was writing this book, I didn't have kids. My wife wasn't pregnant. So I wasn't thinking much about kids. I was thinking more about adults. But a lot of the speaking I do, and a lot of my thinking now is about how this is influencing kids because they don't have the choices we have as adults. They don't have the same control resources. They don't have the same prefrontal cortex development. They aren't able in the same way to make wise decisions not that all our decisions are wise, but we have we have a greater capacity. So I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the concerns are for adults, but the bigger ones for me are for children, where their development, their social development, their cognitive development, I think, is to some extent being, if not hampered, at least shaped in big ways by their interactions with screens.
0: Well, I went to a, a speech earlier this year at NYU Stern um, by a sort of guru in leadership and happiness. And he said something really interesting. He said that attention is our currency for learning. We literally pay attention. And do you have a theory or idea about how we can constructively integrate our our tools of technology which have given us so much in a way that actually facilitates our learning?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. You know, there are two things you can do. You can either use use these technologies and these tools to augment attention, to make it easy to attend, to, to be consistent with what you're trying to do. So in the classroom, for example, the engaged classroom idea is that you use these tools in a way that facilitates the message, that facilitates the class. The problem is when people have access to screens, they end up deviating. They, their minds wander. They're on social media and so on. So that's that's difficult to do. I think the best thing we can do right now is really just to set barriers and to say, uh, you know, this is when I'm engaged with my screens. Here is a sacred point in the day. Maybe it's a certain number of hours. Maybe it's dinner time. Maybe it's – I don't know what it is. It's, it's different for every person. For me, it's – I try on the weekends to put my phone on airplane mode, so it's essentially just a camera. And I'll take photos of my kids and my wife, and we'll all you know, go out about our days in a way that frees us from tech to a large extent. Um, And it's important to us that we have those barriers. I'm not saying that people should go cold turkey on tech. I think that's ridiculous. And also, I think it's miraculous. And, you know, I couldn't introduce my kids to their grandparents in Australia and their uncle if I didn't have FaceTime, for example, or Skype. So tech can be wonderful. It's just working out the right balance. Uh, A lot of people use environmental metaphors like sustainability and it's about living a sustainable life where the tech that you have enhances your well-being instead of
1: happens it. It's interesting because you're writing this book, Irresistible, and you have all this research on screens. And we know just from some background research that your son, I think for the first time he ever smiled, was seeing something on a screen, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. It was, it was a scary moment for me. It was when he was four months old. Uh, he was a little late to smile. He was a very, very engaged kid, but he, he took a little while to smile. And so I kept looking at him being like, when, it, when is the moment going to be? And he reached over one day. I had my my phone with me. I wasn't using it, but it was on my lap. He grabbed my phone and he swiped, which is a very natural gesture for kids. And the the picture on the screen changed. And he looked at it and he smiled at it. He thought that was amazing. You know, like for a kid of that age to have control over the environment is a really pleasurable experience. And I realized how potent these devices were that even to a four-month-old, there was enough of a positive feedback response just in swiping the device that I needed to keep it away from him. I didn't want that to be the source of happiness for this young four-month-old kid. And so that was a really striking experience for me. That's
1: how he experienced the world for the first time, like in the happy moment. Isn't that crazy? That was sharing? his first
2: happy moment, yeah.
0: It just makes me want to hear more about your son and <laughs> your kids, okay. I should say, and your wife. How did, how did you guys meet? And
2: Yeah, we met in the city. Um, she, she has a business, she, which I talk about a lot in class, actually. She has a, a personalized nail polish company. It's called Pretty Please Nail Polish. And you can you can basically put anything you want on the logo on the label, sorry. So it can be a, a corporate logo if it's going to be for corporate swag. She does a lot of that kind of stuff. She also does things like bachelorette parties, weddings, baby showers. So you can put whatever you want on the on the bottle. Uh, there are lots of different colors available, so you can you know match it to your your company or whatever. Uh, so when I met her, actually the the night we met, our first date, she had just got the business cards printed. And she was very happy with them, and she showed them to me, and she said, what do you think? And, of course, I'm colorblind, so <laughs> um, I, I sort of said, yeah, you know, that, that blue is beautiful. And she's like, it's green. It's not, <laughs> it's said. I found our
1: first and conversation yeah. and,
2: you're just yeah. about to say,
0: and then she walked <laughs> yeah, out yeah, for the right.
2: first thing. It, it turns out being <laughs> colorblind is a pretty good icebreaker because it, it leads to a lot of conversations, and that was, that was one of ours. Um, yeah, so we, so we met uh, a number of years ago. we we've been married about four, four and a half years. We have, as I said, these two kids. We have a son named Sam. Uh, and he's almost two and a daughter named Isabel, and she's four months old.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, what a little
2: Thank you. baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she, she is a little baby, yeah. <laughs> she's very sweet. So is Sam. Uh,
0: so is your wife able to integrate a lot of your research I- of color into her business?
2: Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about this stuff all the time. Um, and yeah. I also talk about it with my class partly because I'm hoping they'll have good ideas. You know, it's great for oh, me. crowdsource I, it. I crowdsource it. I basically, I have access to 150 very smart MBA students. I tell them about what she's dealing with and they come back with ideas. And it's, it's an amazing way to get new ideas. Wow. So it's great as a case study material because I'm very intimately familiar with, the, with the, por- the product and the topic. But also great because it's free consulting for my wife's business.
0: And lots of women going to bachelorette parties who can use a
2: lot of my it. Right now. it. Let's yep.
1: promote it right now. So if you're looking for customized <laughs> nail polish, check out Pretty Please Nail Polish. That's the right. best nail polish that you can find. Exactly. He's so good
0: at doing that. <laughs> Very isn't he? Good. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it just—it's just
1: fun to sell things, isn't it?
0: <laughs> we'll definitely put it up on our Instagram. Great. For sure. Absolutely. It, it probably
1: you. doesn't. It probably doesn't hurt her business at all that she has someone that has like the cheat codes and like life hacks associated with color you know helping her out yeah and that you're, you're a pretty prominent guy I mean you're writing books literally New York Times bestsellers and um did you see his TED talk actually
0: I did see your TED talk yeah, yeah. that's was drawing I thought, a lot of my little nuggets from there
1: I always thought if, uh, if I could do a TED talk well first of all I'd have to have something that I was an expert at but <laughs> if, I, if I could do a TED talk like that would be like the ultimate like victory in life right i mean we're like addicted to these things they're so they're so fun what was that like to be able to get on the ted stage and talk about something where you're an expert
2: it was fun it was great i I had a very very good time Uh, it's an incredibly well-run event and uh it's i mean it's 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 an amazing event it's it's hard to know exactly what to say about it it's um it's an extravaganza you basically go as a speaker uh the, the tickets to go as a as a just an audience member, are right? incredibly expensive. But as a speaker, you go free, and so you sort of walk into this very plush world. There's free stuff everywhere. It's like three grand a ticket or something, right? It's I believe ten. Oh my sweet that's, lord! That's the, those are the cheap tickets.
0: Ten. Thousand dollars.
2: I think that's right. We may want to fact check that. It's something like ten.
0: Do they give you a baggie of diamonds on your <laughs> way in? <laughs> that's they so do. much.
2: They do diamonds. You get a bar of gold, diamonds, <laughs> caviar. Uh, you get caviar. A lot of caviar. A lot. I mean, I just w- walked back to my home with like a. So massive jar of caviar, champagne. <laughs> and, champagne. So you feel like a big champagne. shot. Wow! It was great. Walking it on was, the was great. Stage. It was amazing. I mean, the the audience members are, are generally quite prominent people, especially in the front row. So the thing is, when you're speaking, the lights shine in your eyes because you have the spotlights on you. You're on that big red dot, that famous red dot, which is just a big red carpet. And red being intentional. Now we know. Well, now we know. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
2: And uh, the, the lights are shining in your eyes. The only thing you can really see is what's right in front of you, which is the front row, which is usually just like six or seven incredibly prominent famous people from business and the arts and whatever else. So that's awesome is your audience is seven people who are terrifying. <laughs> uh, terrifyingly impressive. But I loved it. Um, I was up on stage for a total of nine minutes. I gave a nine-minute talk. It was, it was great.
1: How do you for something like that? Because, I mean, you, you literally wrote an entire book about this kind of topic, and then you got to condense it down to it's nine minutes. It's
2: hard, yeah. So my first thought was, you know what, I'm going to do. I'm going to give like a, a sentence from each chapter, and that'll be my nine minutes. And then I realized that's going to be a terrible talk. Ooh, that'd be disjointed. Very disjointed. So what I decided to do is like pick one topic. I spoke about stopping cues, which we've already discussed. Just this idea that everything is built now so that there's no natural break or end. And so you never leave it alone. It's like being in a casino where you don't know that time is passing because there are no clocks and it's dark. So this is what I spoke about. The The interesting thing is that the longer the talk, the less time you have to prep, at least for me, the shorter the talk, the more time because you're editing and whittling it down. I remember I gave the final draft of my slides about two minutes before I was on stage. So I handed it to the tech guy. He took it and he was like, yeah, this is totally normal. People do this all the time. I was like, yeah, this is like version 14 or something. And he said, just look at this. And he showed me the other people's slides. It was like version 87, version 53. We're all up there giving incredibly short talks on a lifetime of study. So to become expert in something where you know enough about it to be able to give these talks, you then have to condense all this information into such a short period of time. That's really hard. And almost all the speaking I do is long form. Like I'll get up for an hour or 90 minutes or even 45 minutes. And in the classroom, I get the privilege of being up in front of people for, I guess, three hours a week for like 13, 14 weeks. I mean, that's that's like, what is that, like 40-something hours of time. It's your show. I don't show. have to be too selective, yeah. There's the Adam show.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting that you say that you get the privilege of standing up in front of the students and teaching because your background is in research and it's in writing. And, you know, obviously you said that you came to New York so that you could consult and that, you know, you could um, do these long-form interviews. But what is it about the classroom that lights a fire in you and what is it about your students that that you've learned?
2: Uh, That's Yeah, that's a great question. I I love teaching. I think, uh, you know... It's one of the aspects of academic life, and it's only one of them. There is research, there is committee work, there's, you know, advising students and all this other stuff. And so people like different aspects, certain amounts, and I love the teaching part of it. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I love teaching people who are smart and interested and engaged because they, they give back a huge amount. So every class is different for me. I'll I'll have taught the same lecture maybe 20 times And each time will be different. I'll come away with something different. It'll change how I teach it the next time. A lot of my ideas for books come from being in the classroom, something, maybe one comment someone said. Like, I think the idea for this book probably originated with one person saying one thing in a classroom. Oh, tell us. Who was that? I'm guessing that it was someone in the classroom who said something about the fact that there were no screens and we couldn't use tech at NYU. And we had a discussion about it. I can't remember who it was. Um, but that this is usually <coughs> this is you know the the big benefit of of being in the classroom is it ends up being the the place the the foundation for so many great things uh, and so for me it's I I like teaching but I also feel like I get a lot from the classroom as well that's why it is a privilege.
0: I'm it, sort of bummed that I didn't it, take your I mean I had a terrific professor yep, Professor Carr well. all the
2: professors. Uh, professor Carr uh, quite yes. good they're all quite good Professor Carr is is fantastic absolutely
0: they're all
1: qu- and now we have. Uh, Flogged all the professors and said how good they are, <laughs> so no one feels offended. It's <laughs> interesting. So I mean, you're you're in front of like you know a like hundred students, and obviously they're they're into marketing. You know, they yeah. want to hear what you have to say. But and what you're studying, behavioral marketing, like behavioral things people do. I mean, it's both really broad as far as affecting everybody, but also like really narrow at the same time because there's sometimes things you're not even thinking about. Yeah. What's it like to to go from being just a, a student to a professor to a guy who's now relatively prominent i mean writing new york times bestsellers you have a lot of media out there you have a lot of clicks and downloads and likes what's it like to get a little bit famous
2: it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's a discontinuity between who i am now and who i was as a grad student i remember giving my very first talk as a grad student and i was in it was in 2005 i was at princeton and it was we gave annual brown bags a brown bag is just where everyone comes with their lunch in a brown bag and they sit and watch you speak all the professors are there. It's kind of terrifying when you're a first-year grad student. And I've probably given a thousand talks since then, maybe more. I don't even know. And I'm sure there were there were watershed moments where, you know, I I had an epiphany and I realized, hey, this I, this is a thing I should do differently. But in looking back, that's 15 years almost. That there, there is no, there's nothing that I can point to to say there was that day and you know then I was a different person. Then something changed. You know, clicks and down- downloads are all very well and they're very nice, but they don't they don't affect you in a very sort of immediate, visceral way. I I don't know. I I, I found it interesting coming to Stern because I I taught marketing in my first year in 2009, having never taken a marketing class in my life. That was interesting and a bit tricky. Now I've consulted with companies. Um, I've obviously been teaching the course for a long time, so I feel like I know much more about marketing. But in the beginning, I knew a lot about human behavior, and I could apply it to marketing. But that first year was, you know, it was a, a steep learning curve for me. So that was a big thing. Teaching marketing for the first time. But since then, I think it's been, it's been sort of continuous and I learn a lot every year, but I don't feel different. In that way.
0: That says more about you than I think anything yeah. has that you were so good and, yeah. that, and why you wanted to do so much that they were like, yeah, he'll, he'll teach marketing. Like, yeah, he'll, he'll figure make it, it out. Yeah,
1: you can learn as you go. Absolutely. <laughs> you <got it. laughs>
0: but you mentioned that you are thinking about your third book. Yes, And so what it, what's next for Adam Alter?
2: So I have a document, and uh, I add book ideas to the document over time. And I don't really look at them as I add. And then I get to a point where I have a, a lull. Like I've, I've just finished teaching for the semester. So this is a lull for me. Uh, I just traveled extensively for three months. So, you know, teaching ended, traveling ended at the same time. And I'm now looking at that document for the first time. And it has – it's probably got 30 ideas And 10 of them, I think, are potentially worthwhile. And maybe two or three are are book-worthy. I could imagine not just writing a long 10,000-word piece on on that topic, but also like a whole book, you know, 100,000 words. So I have a meeting with my agent, uh, my literary agent, in a couple of days. And we're going to discuss those ideas. And then one of them will become a book. I'm not ready to share because maybe one one of the other ones will be the, the fourth book or the fifth book so I, I can't let the cat out of the bag just yet but I'm thinking about it I'd like to write the proposal for the next book pretty soon and then see if someone wants to publish it and then I'll start writing it
1: well I'll tell you what when you get the next book coming um, I hope you'll come to Stern Chats to help you promote it I'd love to I think that'd to. be very exciting I'd love to I, I just want to leave everybody with like a, with like a thought based on some of your, of your research and it's about the future you, you say something very interesting about screens making people less happy <coughs> is there a solution to this and what does the future look like?
2: Yeah. So let's start with a pessimistic note, um, which I think is important, and that is that we need to be careful. Just because if we think that our little rectangular devices are hard for us to resist, imagine when we all own our own personal VR and AR goggles, and we're walking around in this perfect world. You think it's going to happen? Yeah. I, I, if you speak to people in the industry, they say that between two and four years from now, we will all have our own personal VR goggles. And once that happens, once the software is sophisticated enough you know, if humans are sort of searching for the best of all possible worlds at all moments, it's possible that the best of all worlds will be that idealized, simple, less complicated, less messy world that you will find when you put your goggles on. Um, and so I think we're going to need to resist that because we do need some real non-virtual human interactions in our lives. And so that that is a note of caution. I think that's something to be wary of. Uh, there is now a, a groundswell, a, a rise in, in interest among people in the industry to try and understand the effects of their product. So Sean Parker recently came out, one of the early Facebook investors, um, and obviously known for a lot of other things as well. And he basically said, Facebook knows what they're doing. They are trying to engage you and they do what they can to engage you um, as, as much as possible. And I think that suggests that there's an awareness, that that, that that will have effects on people. And so companies like that need to be more mindful. Uh, looking forward, what can we all do about it? I think it goes back to this idea of sustainability, that we are not going to be able to roll back the clock, and I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to go back to a time when we don't have screens and these forms of tech. Uh, But I think we need to all recognize the, the importance of sacred times when we don't have screens in front of us. So the first thing to do really is to download an app, like there's an app called Moment, which I use, a lot of people use, and it basically tracks how many minutes a day you spend on your screen, on your phone. And uh, for me, that number is about three to four hours, which is the US average, which is staggering. That's a huge amount of time. Uh, So just being mindful, setting boundaries, deciding when you will and will not use your screen is the first step and it's a big step and it makes a huge difference in people's lives. I've seen people do it. They almost always feel better about life and about their own experiences when they do.
1: Well, I'm gonna tell you what, that's all interesting stuff, it's amazing, you've said it all. We really appreciate you coming on here. It was a lot of fun. I learned a ton of stuff.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had fun, too.
1: Yeah, and check out Drunk Tank Pink. Check out Irresistible and Pretty Please Nail Polish if you're in the nail polish market. And, hey, Jeff fun? I had a fantastic time. That's important. That's half the battle. <laughs> that might be 75% of the battle. People don't come in here and have fun. Then What's the point, right?
0: Absolutely. I had
2: fun. I had a lot of fun. You guys were great. Thank you. Thank All you right, so yeah, much. We'll see you around. All right.